I'm Leilani, and I'm the host of There's Danger Here, a podcast that's heavy into true crime, but also doesn't discriminate against the weird, macabre, and maybe even a little haunted. Like many others, I found myself intrigued with cases of criminal activity around the globe. I got started by listening to numerous podcasts, often finding myself curious to know more, and so I started looking into cases myself. Here, I present to you my findings. Now, this first episode comes straight out of the state I currently reside. So we're going to head into Oregon, and we're going to talk about the Happy Face Killer. Keith Hunter Jesperson was born on April 6, 1955, in Chilliwack, British Columbia. His parents were Leslie, or Les, and Gladys Jesperson, who had four other children. Keith was smack dab in the middle. Most articles I found report that Keith suffered from abuse from his father, Les. Les was condescending to women and cruel to the entire family. Though purportedly, Les gave Keith even less attention than the rest of his siblings. And when his father would give him attention, it was often to beat him. There's even a claim that Keith was shocked in a greenhouse by his father. According to the book, The Happy Face Murder, The Life of Serial Killer Keith Hunter Jesperson, quote, Keith would remember the sarcastic put-downs, the insults, and the wisecracks made by his father. One incident involved a young Keith asking his father whether an electric fence was working. Leslie encouraged his son to urinate on the fence and laughed uproariously when the boy received a sharp electric shock. In 1964, when Keith would have been around nine, he called a woman in a nearby car, bitch. The woman, 16-year-old son, immediately got out of the car and punched Keith once, and kicked him twice. As punishment for this, Les continued to beat Keith. By 11, Les was charging Keith rent to live with him. And then when he was around 16, Les shot and killed his dog, Duke, telling Keith that it was done because Duke had gotten into poison. So we're off to a really great start with his childhood here. While Keith was born in British Columbia, at some point during his elementary years, the family moved to Soleil, Washington. Throughout these years, Keith was reported as a loner because his peers would tease him about his size. They gave him nicknames, such as Igor. He did make friends with a boy named Martin for a time, though the two seemed to get in trouble frequently, and their friendship ended when Keith beat Martin until he lost consciousness, even claiming he would have kept beating him to death, but Keith's father stopped him. Around the same time, Keith was known to kill and torture animals, as well as get a thrill out of watching animals kill each other. Before he was a teenager, Keith attempted to kill a second person, if we're going to believe that he really, truly meant to kill Martin. At a lake, a boy held Keith's head underwater until he was on the verge of passing out. In revenge, when Keith saw him at a public pool, Keith held the boy underwater until pulled off by a lifeguard. Again, Keith reports that he would have killed the boy, if the lifeguard hadn't intervened. Can you imagine a child attempting to kill two different people before he was even a teenager? And now, let's move into those teenagers, shall we? It seems like he followed suit for a typical psychopath. He befriended a boy named Tom, and the two got into shoplifting. Keith started setting fires, a trait that was actually handed down by his grandfather, according to several articles I read. Then, at 14, Keith had his first then, 14, Keith had his first sexual encounter, in which he says that he was raped. In the same year, 
he started experimenting with pipe bombs. When he was 16, Keith was at wrestling practice where he was bullied for being unable to climb a rope and reach the top. One day while climbing the rope, the rope failed and Keith fell up to 25 feet, hitting his head. Now, this is where I'm going to interject. So I decided to do this story as one of my openers because I've actually met Jesperson. After meeting with many incarcerated individuals, I formed a curiosity about what they'd say to me versus how the media and the news portrayed their stories. And this is one of the best examples I have of this. Though I never asked why he killed women. With serial killers, it seems like they get some joy out of telling their stories. It is their way to relive it, after all. Instead, if an inmate spoke about something, I simply let them talk. Unless they were being vulgar, I really just try to let the conversation be organic. This meet leads me to a couple specific parts of Keith's childhood. First, when he talked, he never, ever brought up being abused. In fact, he made light of his childhood. He did say that he was tall his entire life, but never mentioned being bullied about it. He did speak directly about the rope incident, which is why I kept this in. According to multiple articles I found, uh, he was bullied about this rope. However, in actually speaking to him, from him to me, he talked about this rope as being part of gym class, not necessarily wrestling practice. Again, this felt surreal to me because I remember having rope in elementary school and being the wild child I am, I loved climbing that dang thing. Now, Keith said that he was in a line of other kids and they were climbing up one by one. He was basically just waiting in line to see who could get to the highest point. Again, Keith specifically mentions being much larger than most of his cohort. So when he goes to climb the rope, he says he gets almost to the top and the rope fails at that time. But he also reports that he fell basically straight down, landing on his feet, breaking an ankle, nothing about hitting his head. He did full on body laugh when he talked about this. He said he had to go to the hospital, which racked up a decent bill. The school investigated and determined that, again, according to Keith, someone had put the wrong parts to hold the rope and they weren't secured together properly. So when he went up being bigger than everybody else, that's why it failed. He then went on to say it was his mother who sued the school and that she could be quite vicious when she wanted her way. He said something about finding it funny because she was so small and seemed so mild. Again, I'm putting in this part because it's truly different from the reports I've read. Although it seems like he, much like many other inmates, say and write things according to their mood and their audience. So was he placating around other inmates or was this really how he saw it? Now back to the researched version. Throughout high school, Keith continued to be bullied and ostracized for his size. As a result, he never dated in high school, nor did he attend any dances to include his prom. While he did graduate, he was at near bottom of his class, and he did not go to college. His father didn't believe he'd be successful. By age 31, Keith did manage to find a woman who found something in him. Rose and he married in 1986 and went on to have three children together. At this time, Keith became a trucker to support his family, but the distance of trucking allowed Keith to begin numerous affairs. Rose became suspicious of these affairs when multiple women began calling the house and asking for Keith. The marriage ended in 1990 with Keith being the one to file for divorce. Honestly, this was a little surprising to find him as the plaintiff and not Rose. 
Then after the divorce, Keith moved into a new house and began his killing spree that spanned from 1990 to 1995. And while there is information on his family, the crimes that I'm going to cover after this have nothing to do with them. Oftentimes, families are victims in their own right, and as such, I just don't feel that it's my place to bring them into this. Other than to say that at least one of his children has made several documentaries and appearances to speak of how she felt upon learning that her father was a murderer. Most of them are quite interesting. I really suggest you going to look them up. Now, we are on to the killing, so it's at this time I'll give a warning to the rest of this episode that it's going to contain information about sexual abuse and violence, all leading to murder. His first victim was Tanya Bennett, a 23-year-old Portland, Oregon native. Tanya was born on April 18, 1966, and was described as a free spirit by many who knew her. She was known to be friendly and unafraid to turn strangers into friends. Her mother reports that Tanya liked the bar scene and had been known to go home with men and spend a night or two with them. It was due to this that Tanya's mother hadn't suspected anything was amiss until she saw a composite sketch that was being circulated on the news about a found dead woman. On the night of January 21st, 1990, Tanya went to a bar called JB's or the Tavern, depending on the source, where she played pool with a group of men or leaving with one of them. Unfortunately, Tanya was found the next day off an embankment of the highway in Portland. She had been brutally beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled until death. Her body was found with a rope around her neck, jeans pulled down with the fly section of her jeans completely missing. At the scene, there was little usable evidence, no fingerprints or blood suggesting that she had been killed elsewhere and then dumped off the side of the road. Eyewitness accounts of the tavern weren't particularly helpful either, as the only information was that Tanya had left with a man, lacking a decent description. Again, personally, I can say I'm a little surprised by this. Not that all eyewitness accounts can always be helpful. In fact, at times, they can make cases more difficult as everyone remembers things differently. Alcohol may have made memories less reliable. The fact that Keith stands six foot eight is a unique characteristic. Initially, Keith wasn't even on the radar for police as a female came forward and made a confession. Several confessions, in fact. On February 5th, police received a phone call. The caller claimed to know who was responsible for the killing of Tanya. Laverne Pavlinak, 58-year-old female at the time, stated that it was her boyfriend, John Sosnowski, who was in his 40s. Police went to her house, and in the first interview, Laverne states that she reports her initial delay of reporting to the police about this murder was that she was afraid of her boyfriend, who was abusive, that he was an alcoholic who had a sexual fetish of tying ropes around her neck during sex. In addition, Laverne placed John as going out and showering immediately upon return that night, that he was bruised and complained of his hands hurting. According to the documentary, Catching Killers, Laverne allowed for search of her apartment, and it was at this time that police found an envelope with the words T. Bennett, a good piece, handwritten on it. John initially denied any knowledge of Tanya or her murder. Shortly after the initial contact, Laverne brought in more evidence to the police station in which she claimed to have found 
um, when cleaning out the apartment. This included a fly section of a pair of acid wash jeans and a purse. However, it was later determined that the jeans were not a match to Tanya's. Laverne, when confronted with this, stated that she had planted the evidence in an attempt to make a quicker conviction of John. After this confrontation, Laverne changed her story, telling detectives that John had called on the night of January 21st from JB's, stating that he was in trouble and that he needed something to clean up a mess. She brought a blue shower curtain and went to the tavern. There she found John with Tanya, who was already dead. After wrapping her up, John made Laverne drive to a location and dump Tanya. On the way, John threatened to kill her too if Laverne ever said anything. In order, excuse me, in order to bolster this statement, the detectives had Laverne drive out to where they had dumped Tanya. Initially, however, they drove past the location before Laverne had the detectives turn around and managed to accurately identify where Tanya was found. After this, detectives arrested John. Days later, Laverne changed her story for a third time, stating that when she arrived at JB's, Tanya and John were arguing. John convinced Tanya to get into the car and at some point agreed to have sex with him. When they stopped, John grabbed a rope telling Laverne to put it around Tanya's neck. Laverne complied and closed her eyes while tightening the rope as John had sex with her. He then began hitting her in the face as Laverne kept tightening the rope until Tanya died. Initially, the interviewing detective received this confession, left Laverne at home, and returned to the station. After, present after presenting his information to others, the question was, why was Laverne not immediately arrested? The detective had neglected this, but after being confronted by his peers about his lack of judgment, returned to Laverne's home, where she was officially arrested for the murder of Tanya. Mm -hmm. On January 24th, 1991, Laverne went on trial. There, she recanted her statements, instead reporting that she had been in an abusive relationship with John and attempted to use this event as her way out. Other than Laverne's statements and her ability to pick out the location of the body dump, there was no actual physical evidence against them. In addition, those eyewitnesses from JB's or the tavern stated that it was not John who left with Tanya. John continued to deny his involvement. During the trial, Keith left a handwritten message on a rest stop wall stating, quote, I killed Tanya Bennett January 21, 1990 in Portland, Oregon. I beat her to death, raped her, and I loved it. Yes, I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. People took the blame, and I'm free, end quote. And he then signed it with a smiley face. In Umatilla, Oregon, Keith left a similar message and again signed it with a smiley face. In spite of all this, just seven days after the trial began, Laverne was found guilty and sentenced to a minimum of 15 years in prison. John subsequently pleaded no contest in order to avoid the possibility of the death penalty, they served four years before Keith was caught and his involvement was confirmed. In 1995, Keith sent a letter to a courthouse and the Oregonian, a news agency, complete with happy faces throughout the letter. In the letter, he wrote about the murder of Tanya, including details such as cutting off 
the Jane Fly section and leaving her pants down to her ankles. However, he was inaccurate in some details, which included using rope that was burnt on one end, which was not the case. The letter didn't just include the murder of Tanya, but four others. As the police already convicted two people for the murder, there was a decision by the media, not the police, to investigate the validity of this letter. Multiple jurisdictions were involved and had reported that many of the details within the letter were not only accurate, but never released to the public when confronted by this by the media investigator. The Oregonian representative also interviewed Laverne and John, in which Laverne stated again that she simply wanted to get out of an abusive relationship and that everything, quote, snowballed. That she knew about the body dump site because it was released on the news along with a photo of it. John continued to profess his innocence, but for fear of the death penalty, had pleaded no contest. It was then that the media reported this information and labeled Keith as the happy face killer, owing to all the smiley faces that littered his letter. The state maintained their position, and it wasn't until 1995, with the official arrest of Keith, that their position changed. When Keith began his killing confessions after his arrest, he reported that he met Tanya at a, the bar that he had gone to play pool at. She walked right up to him and gave him a hug. According to Keith, she acted like she knew him. He left and came back, at this time inviting her to dinner, but convinced her to go to his rental house first in order to get money to pay for said dinner. There, the two engaged in sexual relations, but she said she wasn't into it. He got mad at her and then began to beat and strangle her. In order to prevent his fingerprint identification, he cut the fly section off her jeans, after which he returned to the bar to create an alibi for himself. Leaving Tanya's body at home, after setting his alibi, he again returned home, where he then took Tanya's body and placed it in the front seat of his car, subsequently dumping her along the side of the road as he left town. As he was driving, he also stopped and scattered her personal items and threw her purse into a brushy area along the Sandy River Highway. Police took Keith along this route he had claimed to have dumped Tanya, but he was unable to accurately identify the location. They continued to where he claimed to have dumped the purse. A crew went out to search for it an entire day, but were unable to locate anything. Days later, however, after blackberry bushes were cut to the ground, Tanya's Oregon State identification was found. Three months late, three months after his first murder, Keith met Don Richard Slegel, a 21-year-old mother of three who became the only known victim to survive an attack. They met at Mount Shasta Shopping Mall where Don was out with her infant son. That day, she had had a disagreement with her husband and left to cool down. She was parked in the mall's parking lot when Keith drove up. After chatting for a while, she agreed to get into Keith's vehicle, and according to Don, she didn't feel anything was wrong until Keith's face went blank and he stopped the car in a remote area. For three hours, he attempted to rape Don, and when that failed due to her continuous fighting, he resorted to strangling. Don fought and begged her for her and her son's life. Eventually, Keith started the car and simply drove her back to her own, telling her not to go to the police.
Juan immediately reported him to the police, and for his actions, he was charged and found guilty of only the misdemeanor sexual battery. This was likely due to the fact that she willingly got into his car, but still, the police downplayed Keith's role in this. The result of this, coupled with the loss of her infant son at the hands of her own husband, less than a year later, spiraled Dawn. She turned to drugs and lost custody of her older children. According to reports I've read, years later, she is doing better, and I truly hope she still is. In 1992, Keith met a woman named Claudia at a truck stop. She was found in August of the same year, having been bound in duct tape and sexually assaulted, strangled, and beaten to death. When I say that she was beaten, I mean with his fists, physically punching her until death. At this time, Claudia remains the only unidentified victim to Keith. She was kept alive likely for up to four days before being murdered. The third victim was picked up at a truck stop in August of 1992 at Turlock, California. Cynthia Wilcox was a 32-year-old sex worker at the time. Since admitting to her killing, Keith has since recanted saying that he didn't know her upon seeing a photograph instead saying that he believed he killed someone else in that area at that time. Lori Pentland was picked up from a truck stop in November of 1992. After strangling her, which crushed her neck under the size and strength of his hands, she was dumped behind a G.I. Joe store in Salem, Oregon. He stated that she attempted to double the fee that they had agreed upon for sex acts, and so he subsequently strangled her. She was identified as a victim after a DNA was matched to the semen found at the scene of the crime at the time of her death. It was tested after the Marion County DA was informed of Keith's confession letter to his brother in which he had reported to kill a woman and dump her behind in the vicinity. Lori was 26 years old, and like I said, it was reported she was into sex work at the time. Unfortunately, that's about as much information as I could find on her life before this point. On June 3, 1993, a woman first identified as Cindy was found in Merced County, California after being picked up at a truck stop in Corning, California. Another trucker had stopped along a turnout on the Pacheco Pass Highway and found her. She had been strangled, and at the time she was found, it was reported that her appearance, including clothes, was that of a transient person. It wasn't until April 13, 2022, that Cindy was identified through the use of DNA Doe Project as Patricia Skipple. Patricia was born and raised in Fulton, Oregon. Her family and friends called her Patsy. At the time of her murder, she was 45. Patsy was a mother of two, working as a nurse's aide and in a local cannery. Her older sister said that she was a quiet person and a good mother. Moving into September of 1994, a woman known only as Susanna by Keith was found in Florida. He gave an accurate reporting of the wraps he used to strangle her. Her identity remained unknown until recently. On October 3, 2023, she was reported to have been identified as Suzanne Kellingberg. She was traveling with Keith after being picked up in a truck stop in Tampa. Hoping to make it to Lake Tahoe, Nevada, Susan had fallen asleep in the cab of the truck while the pair were traveling. When they stopped at a rest stop, Keith climbed into the back and sat next to her. Suzanne woke up in a fright and began screaming. In order to prevent security from hearing her, Keith strangled her. 
He then placed two zip ties around her neck and tightened them. According to him, this was to prevent her dinner from coming up when he decided to move her. She wasn't found until September 4, 1994, by an inmate work crew off the hold exit of Interstate 10. At the time, her remains were mostly skeletal and is believed that he killed her nearly a year earlier. After 1993, Keith had a short-lived cooling-off period. According to him, it was at this time that he kept himself busy from murdering others by committing arson along his work routes. Then, in January 1995, Keith picked right back up when he met Angela Sabriz at a bar in Spokane, Washington. According to Keith, they spent days together before he ultimately strangled her. Though he reports killing her because she wouldn't let him sleep. He said that after a week of being with her, he couldn't take her nagging anymore. And in an equally cruel turn, Keith strapped her body under his work truck and drug her along the highway. He did this to remove identification of the face and fingerprints. As such, her remains were found in Nebraska. Angela was 21 years old at the time and was hitchhiking her way to see her boyfriend in Indiana when Keith picked her up and offered to drive her. His final victim was Julie Winningham. She was murdered on March 10th, 1995, in Keith's home. She was found on March 11th. Unlike previous victims that had no personal connection, Keith knew Julia. Julie, excuse me. After beating, strangling, and taking, after beating, strangling, and taking a fist to her Adam's apple, which likely crushed her windpipe, he killed her. Keith then drove with her for 12 to 14 hours before deciding to stop, leaving her nude body dumped off of Highway 14, down a hill where she was found laying on her right side with her head pointing the rest of the way down the hill. She was identified via her fingerprints when they were matched in APHIS. After learning of her death, family and friends identified a truck driver who drove a blue truck as her boyfriend. Some friends called him Keith, while others thought his name might have been Chris. Luckily, one of Julie's friends had purchased a vehicle just prior to this from Julie, and Keith was used as a witness in the bill of sale. Signing it, Keith Hunter Jesperson. Keith was identified as her boyfriend to Detective Rick Buckner. The detective then tracked Keith down, who had continued work driving south. Detectives worked with Keith's employer to set up a fake pickup point in order to confirm that they would be able to meet him. On March 22nd, Keith was detained by the sheriff's deputies in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Detective Buckner set about questioning Keith for six hours. Still, with no information given and no evidence against him, Keith was allowed to leave, where he continued on to Arizona. It was there that he claims to have attempted suicide twice. The first attempt was that night, and then again the subsequent evening by ingesting over-the-counter sleeping pills. The third night, Keith wrote letters to his brother and children, mailing them before calling his employer and subsequently Detective Buckner, confessing to the murder of Julie. Keith reported that the reason he killed Julie was because, quote, blew my top, end quote, stating that they had sex once and he wanted to again, but she did not and said it would be rape. They began to argue, and Julie then brought up that she was mad at him for use, being used as a witness in the selling of her car to her friend 
because now she wouldn't be able to get it back. As they argued, Keith pushed Julie down into a blanket and held her throat for up to five minutes. Shortly after Keith's brother received his letter, he turned it into authorities. The letter confessed to the killing of eight women and assaulting more than that. Additionally, this letter was used to compare to the letters that had previously been sent to the Oregonian. Soon enough, however, Keith began confessing to the additional murders. Even so, at first there was skepticism about his reporting as I laid out in the Tanya Bennett case. In subsequent interviews, accurate details were given that would prove Keith's guilt without such convictions would not have been possible. In October of 1995, Keith pleaded guilty to the murder of Julie Winningham and was sentenced to life in prison in Washington. Following his first sentencing, he was then extradited to Oregon where, after pleading no contest, he was again sentenced to life in, for the murder of Tanya Bennett, and for the murder of Lori Pentland, a second life sentence was handed down. While the standard life sentence in Oregon is 25 years, he was given 30-year minimum sentences in each case to be served consecutively. Finally, Wyoming managed a second extradition and, after agreeing not to seek the death penalty, Keith again pleaded guilty to the murder of Angela Sabres, and so a fourth consecutive life sentence was handed down. Currently, Keith is serving his first two life sentences at Oregon State Penitentiary, or OSP. His earliest release date is March 1st of 2063, a total of 68 years. At present, Keith is 68 years old, making him 108 at his earliest parole in Oregon. Even if he managed to live that long, his next location would be Washington to serve out his original life sentence. In one source, there is a report that California had prosecuted and handed down two additional life sentences. However, I couldn't confirm this information anywhere else but the one source, so it is likely that no other state has officially convicted Keith. His unidentified victim, known as Claudia, as well as Cynthia Wilcox, Patricia Skipple and Susan Kellingberg have not received their due justice according to the court system. Since his arrival at OSP, Keith has made claims of killing more than 166 people. No others have yet to be attributed to him since the original convictions. This last bit is just a fun fact. As with most people, the ins and outs of the prison system are a foreign concept. It is truly different in many aspects. I had long since assumed that a person with multiple murders, particularly serial killers, would be at the top of a hierarchy. And while I cannot speak for every prison out there, that is just not the case in Oregon. Men such as Keith, who are very large in stature, are made fun of for their ca cases. He is considered to have gone for the easiest prey. Women who are much smaller in stature and have little muscle build in order to fight back. Therefore, we offer little challenge. He has been the subject of ridicule, often citing his victim profile, which I tend to think made him claim those additional killings, some of which were men, according to him. Another surprise was that he received life in prison, technically with the possibility of parole, rather than death. Oregon remains a state that carries the death penalty, and it is a surprise that after his first two convictions and the gravity of his crimes, he didn't elicit the death penalty. However, this might have been part of a plea deal 
in order to give him life rather than death for him to plead guilty. Still, it is an odd consequence that he technically has the ability to parole, even if it is after 108 years. I do understand that the state is currently in a moratorium on death, meaning that while the death sentence can be handed down, it will not be carried out with the current governor in office. And now, that wraps up the happy face killer neatly into a cell, where he will remain until his end. To all those listening, remember to be careful out there. It's a dangerous world we live in.